Welcome to the Christian Emergency Podcast, a podcast for Christians spooked by the growing hostility in the culture today. We will tackle a range of topics from current events, persecution, missions, and what it means to be the church. You will gain valuable insights from those experienced working with persecuted Christians around the world, insights we all need to chew on in these strange days. Together, may we help the church stand. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Christian Emergency Podcast. I'm Andy Coleman, your host, and today we are going to be training our eyes on cross-cultural missions, in particular, an interesting phenomenon that's playing out in that arena of cross-cultural missions. It's involving how we are raising up generations of kiddos to walk in the way that they are to go, and this is playing out across continents. It's in surprising manners that this is unfolding, and Karen Elliott of the Rafiki Institute is here to join us and explain and unpack what is going on because this is of concern to parents all across the globe. It's of concern to grandparents all across the globe. It's of concern to educators. It's of concern to families and communities. It's of concern of the church. How do we come alongside the family's responsibility to raise up their children? How do we help the church in their efforts to disciple young people? And how does this all fit together so that children, Christian children, can learn to identify and appreciate and think through all that is good, beautiful, and true? Karen has a lot of experience in this. We're very fortunate to be able to borrow and glean from her experience. Karen, I want to thank you for taking some time to join us, and welcome to the show. Well, Andy, thank you. It's a real privilege to be here, and I I appreciate the invitation. And You've set it up really well. I couldn't have said it <laughs> Well, I think I've already bungled the name. I think I said it, that you are a part of the Rafiki Institute, but I actually think it might be the Rafiki Foundation. So if I mess that up, by all means, feel free to correct me right now. That's no problem. That's right, though. It is the Rafiki Foundation. It looks like you have been involved in some form or fashion of doing this work for the better part of three decades as a missionary and a leader in this in this space, working with the Rafiki Foundation that employs a classical Christian curriculum at schools, I believe, in at least 10 countries across Africa. But would you shed a little bit more light on that and tell us more about yourself? Yeah, Andy, that's uh, right on the money. I'm Karen Elliott, and I am the CEO of Rafiki, and I have been working with the organization for 32 years. Went out as a missionary um, as uh, into Nigeria and stayed overseas and served with Rafiki in its early days, uh, teaching a Bible study fellowship class, helping to get BSF classes going, and then also helping to get Rafiki in a position to start taking in orphans in the early 2000s, which we did across 10 countries. And eventually, as all families, right, because we, we had all these little families of orphans, we had to decide how we're going to educate children. And so we ended up quickly starting our own schools. And we settled on the classical Christian model very early on because we believe it, uh, classical education is the best education for a human being. And if you're going to wed an education with Christian education, then classical education which is pursuing truth, makes the most sense. And if you're not familiar with classical Christian education, there are a lot of places to go to get more information on that. Just type in classical Christian education and your listeners can find out more about 
how that really works out. I would recommend the Association of Classical and Christian Schools and the Society of Classical Learning as resources for that. So I, before going out to the mission field, I lived in Houston, Texas. Um, I, was, uh, I was in commercial lending for 10 years at a bank in Houston, Texas in the 80s, but since the call to go to the mission field uh, in my mid-20s. Um, Andy, I always had an interest or a concern for people with uh, less resources. Uh, I'll be politically incorrect and say the poor, uh, but the Bible talks about the poor. So it's always been a concern, but I also didn't want to just help people get more money. Uh, you know, eternity is a very long time. And so for me as a Christian, the most important thing is I want to help people know God. And so we in Rafiki, this is what we do. We help people know God and we help them raise their standard of living. We help them know God through Bible study. And we also help them raise their standard of living now through education and specifically classical Christian education. So me, I love this. I had a finance degree. I went back and got a master's degree in education. I'm working on a doctorate at Faulkner University in humanities, which also is a really good institution. And uh, I don't want to do anything else. And mm -hmm. I hope God allows me to do this for a long, for many, many more years. Uh, Rafiki, I want to say one thing. Rafiki was founded by Rosemary Jensen. And Rosemary is a visionary. Mainly, she is a woman of faith. And she loves the Lord. And she ran Bible Study Fellowship for 20 years, uh, started Rafiki at the same time, basically, uh, and then uh, went full time with Rafiki at the age of 70. Uh, and so Rosemary is an inspiration to anyone over the age of 70. There's still a lot of work and energy left in you. So that's a little bit about me. And uh, I want to leave you with one quote about me, and then we'll get more into Rafiki. There was one quote that Dawson Trotman said. And he was the founder of the Navigators. And he said this, he says, why do what others can or will do when you can do what others can't or won't do? For me, I was in Houston teaching a Bible study fellowship class, and there were 17 classes for 5 million people. When I got the call to go out with Rafiki, there was one Bible study fellowship class in Nigeria of maybe 150 million people. So I would make an, so for me, it was like, why stay here when there are many people already doing what I'm doing, when there are fewer people doing what I sense God is calling me to do. Um, so there's a huge disparity in resources. And so if anyone is sensing a call to missions, I encourage you to really pursue that. Mm. So that's a little bit about who I am and how I ended up in missions. And I loved it on the mission field. I wouldn't trade those years for anything. Well, I'm just going to interject really quick because I don't want to let you off the hook just yet. You have this finance background. You were successful in the private sector. You were doing all this. And I imagine some of our listeners are in similar seats. They're successful. They've done a lot. But here you are. You have transitioned and you served, You went into full-time missions. What did that look like? How did that play out? How did you find yourself going to the missions field with that kind of a background? I'm excited to learn about that. Well, first of all, while the, while the desire to go was strong, it was scary. And it was not something I was raised to do. I had good family, good parents, but nobody read missionary biographies to me and nobody encouraged me to go to the mission field except uh, our pastor at our church. 
and so yeah it was um for what happened to me was so specific that I would have been a fool to say no. I do did have a banking background. And at the time, Rafiki was not placing people with finance backgrounds. They were placing doctors and teachers. But when Rosemary went to West Africa in 1990, and she gave my resume to the head of the Evangelical Church of West Africa, uh, a six million member denomination, he got my resume, he looked at it, and he fell on his knees, and he said, We've been praying for someone like this for five years. Can she start a credit union for our denomination? So when Rosemary came back and told me that story, I knew I would have been a fool to say no. And so, see, if God, and so God had already put a passion in my heart for people in this certain condition, people in need. He exposed me more to the need. Uh, And so, and, and then he showed me a place where I could serve. And then somebody asked me to do it. And then my heart was so strong in it, I could not have said no. I would have been a fool and disobedient to say no. And so that's how the Lord worked in my heart. I said yes in April. I think it was April of 1990. And Rosemary said, well, I need you to get to Nigeria by July. And so I said, you know, okay. Let's see if see how the support comes in. And you wouldn't believe how quickly the support came in. You know, in fact, I think people thought maybe I had embezzled money or something because the money came so fast. I'm just kidding. Uh, but um, and then I was out by August of 1990. So in a few months, but it was frightening to change. But, you know, the only safe place is in the will of God. So I would tell anyone who who might have an interest or or really doesn't know, here's what the first step we tell everybody to do about going overseas as a missionary is this. Be willing, tell the Lord you're willing to go wherever he sends you and do whatever he asks you to do. You've got to be totally open to God's leading. Make sure you're studying, make sure you're in his, in his word, make sure you're going to church, make sure you are, you're a strong Christian, of course, but then say, Lord, I'll, I'll go anywhere you want me to go. Don't say, well, I'll decide. Uh, uh, first, show me what you want me to do, and then I'll decide. That's not the way it works. You've got to be totally open and then be obedient to what he shows you to do. If you're open, then he, he may call you to global missions, or he may say, no, I want you to do something else. But I would ask people to also consider this. You need to ask your question differently. It's not, you know, why should I go or Oh, Lord, I guess I will go and do my duty. It's if you get to go. And I would tell people here in the U.S., you need to ask yourself, are you really called to stay in America? Are you really called to stay? Because the needs and opportunities are huge. And I don't care whether you go with Rafiki or with Wycliffe or with whatever the mission agency is. Every mission agency needs human beings. It is an, missions is incarnational ministry. And it's not me. It doesn't mean you don't also help nationals. Absolutely. I give money to indigenous mission work as well, but there's still a need for Western missionaries to go and go along, work alongside to our brethren in developing countries. It's resources that we bring. And it's money and materials that we bring. And in many cases, some additional expertise. And then you gain 
from that relationship with our brothers and sisters in another culture. I tell people who are thinking about going to the mission field, you ought to thank God that somebody will actually spend money to send you to go serve in another culture. It's maybe it's frightening, but you know, as Spurgeon said, if God calls you to be a missionary, don't stoop to be a king. Go for it. So, well, you obviously opened up a topic <laughs> that I like to talk about. So I'll stop there. But if anybody wants to know more about going out to the mission field, you can just write me to the Rafiki, Rafiki Foundation website, and I'll be very happy to talk to you about that. I love all that you just shared. I think it's refreshing and helpful. And there may be people listening right now that are scared. They're alarmed. They, they sense that they are being called to go and serve um, in an uncomfortable, unknown setting. Um, I think the best dramas to watch on film or stage are often that fish out of water who has to figure things out. And I think a lot of times as we follow God and we give him a yes before we even know what our marching orders are, um, find ourselves in those places, and yet God provides. And it does make for an adventure. It it makes for an, a beautiful picture of the church working together and people having to depend totally on Christ and to see him work through us and not us somehow accomplishing anything in our own strength or our own uh, thinking. So uh, what you're describing to me sounds just like a surrendered life. It's a surrendered life, surrendered to Christ, and to see him use it as he would best see fit. So I love it, and I'm glad that you articulated that. I'm, I'm very interested in exposing more and more of our listeners just to that that piece of the church, that opportunity that we all have to consider and pray over. Well, and it's good because you're working with, you're working cross-culturally in your ministry, right? And, yeah. uh, and working with the persecuted church. And we need to get outside of our comfort zone. We need to get outside of our own bubble, in a sense. And I can't think of a better way than to just give your life. We have a lot of missionaries who've gone out. I've got one missionary. She's a grandmother. She's got 19 grandchildren. She's wow. been out for 10 years now. Okay. So there's a woman who could have said, I've got a lot of grandchildren. I'm going to stay here in America. But, you know, she was like, well, my kids are raising my grandkids. I raise my kids. That's their job to raise their grandchildren. And she misses her grandkids. But I'll tell you this. She probably has an even greater impact on her grandchildren, which is really as a Christian adult. Your heritage is you, know, you want to create a legacy. Go to the mission field and show your children and your grandchildren you are willing to surrender all. Yeah. That is having an amazing impact on her grandchildren. So uh, we have others who've gone out for 25 years and raised four children on the mission field. And that's common in mission work. I would encourage people to read missionary biographies. And I would read biographies written 150 years ago. Yeah. Uh, and, and, uh, so, and of course, be in the word of God and take a missions course and, oh. and go work in, uh, cross-culturally in your own city, as well as, by the way, go next door and meet your neighbor because we're all on mission. I don't really think there's a dichotomy here. I think, I th and I think there's enough resources around in the church for there to be a robust local missions outreach, as well as a global missions outreach. I think churches can do both and, not either or. And we as God's people need to be open to more and more open to global missions uh, service. Amen. And I want to echo 
all of that. That is, that's excellent. Those are excellent points. And I would add on to your description of the, the faithful sister in Christ who is serving abroad, despite having a 19 grandchildren back home and, and kiddos of her own. Um, I think that so often when we live a surrendered life, and then we can include our children and our grandchildren in a little bit of that, maybe bring them over for periods so that they can help and they can serve. All of a sudden, the things that can consume us and uh, consume our children and things that they might think at school or in their, their social groups that are really important things, they realize that's not as important as I really thought it was. I got to go and see people learning about Christ, and I got to help meet some real needs and I and that puts it all into context that too often our young people lack. So there's all kinds of opportunities that we're not even thinking of when we say yes. Yep, that's a great point. It really you can help give your family a global vision and a, a bigger discipleship heart, and get the grandkids or kids to come over and 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 serve. Uh, absolutely. We will return to the podcast momentarily. But first, a word from our sponsor. Being a Christian today can be hard. This is true if you live in a heavily persecuted country like Iran or areas where cultural pressures against Christians are growing fast, like America and Europe. Fortunately, none of us have to stand alone. We are part of a giant body, one huge spiritual family that spans the globe. That is the church. The Christian Emergency Alliance is committed to helping the church stand, regardless of the pressures to come. As a 501c3 nonprofit, the Christian Emergency Alliance strives to help our spiritual family when persecution hits. We also strengthen the church by supporting ministry that makes Christ famous, defends biblical truth, and prepares fellow believers for challenges ahead. You have the opportunity to make a huge impact in this work today. Become a monthly financial ally of the Christian Emergency Alliance by signing up at christianemergency.com. Your support of $25 a month or a gift in any amount will bless those who need help in these darkening days. Help the church stand today, tomorrow, and in the days to come. Register today at www.christianemergency.com. And now, back to the show. Well, I'm, I'm loving this conversation, but would you also tell us a little bit more about the Rafiki Foundation and just how it came into being. You touched on it a little bit, what it does, and also how did it get its name? Rafiki is a Swahili word that means friend, and we are a friend to Africans primarily, but we're a friend to others. But uh, it got its name because our founder, Rosemary Jensen, and her husband, Dr. Robert Jensen, and two others, Don McCann and Richard Walenta, had gone over to Tanzania back in the mid-night in 1985 they were um bob had founded a hospital on the slopes of mount kilimanjaro and rosemary and bob wanted to go back check on the hospital and see how they could get bible study fellowship teacher teachers into africa and they were going to start in tanzania so after visiting there they on their way back they realized they needed to form a, an organization and so they use so swahili is the language for Tanzania. And so they decided to call it Rafiki, which by the way, is also the name of the lion. I mean, the monkey in the Lion King. And so uh, you won't be able to remember that easily. Mm -hmm. So as you mentioned, the Rafiki Foundation now it was founded in 1985. And now we've been serving in Africa for 32 years. Um, and um, we, um, is it 32? Is that right? 37, excuse me, 37, 37 years. And so 
we now are in 10 African countries. And in each country, we have what we call a Rafiki village. Each village has an, a children's home for orphans, a pre-K through high school, classical Christian school for the orphans, and then uh, ch poor children, children in poverty from the surrounding community. And then we also have in seven of the 10 sites, a classical Christian teacher's college for young men and women who finished high school and want to get a teacher's certificate or diploma. And we also have a program through the church or with the church to help their widows and poor women where we purchase handicrafts from them and market them here in the States and help them financially. And so that's what we have in Rafiki villages. And we're on about 50 acres in each of those 10 sites. And every one of those sites has a story of faith in terms of how we got the land, when we built, what was going on at the time. You know, we moved into Liberia just two years after the Civil War ended. A step of faith by our founder and president to devote resources and people. We started building the Rafiki village in Nigeria uh, just a year after their own 9-11. You know, we had our 9-11 and they had their 9-11 about the same time in Jos, Nigeria. Massive religious riots. And yet we felt God was leading us to go ahead and invest time and people and resources to build buildings and start these Rafiki villages. So, so uh, the great stories behind each one. So we, um, that's what we have. And the other thing that we have, though, two other resources I want to mention is we have our own Rafiki Bible study uh, that was written by 18 notable theologians and uh, edited by Rosemary Jensen and David Wells, Dr. David Wells. That material um, was then taken and we uh, made it age appropriate for children for school. So now we have a Rafiki Bible study for every book of the Bible for every day of the week, for every age level. Mm. Scripted lessons, questions, notes, catechism, memory verses, and we have a hymnal. So we use this in our schools uh, every day. The day starts with Bible study. Mm. Every classroom, that's the first thing they do. It is our heartbeat. We don't want to do anything else without that Bible study. And everybody, everybody at a Rafiki village is literally on the same passage from the custodian to the missionary to the teacher to the child to the to the laundry to the food service the laundry people the guards security everybody and that's what keeps us unified it keeps us focused on the lord it also keeps us from mission drift yeah so bible study second thing we have is our classical christian curriculum and that is about 70,000 pages of content from preschool to high school core subjects like maths and language arts and the sciences, as well as history and logic and rhetoric um, and so and art and music. So this too, God has enabled us to develop uh, really over the last 20 years. The Bible study, study we started writing in 2006, the school curriculum in 2002. Wow. So these two resources that we um, have have worked with people to get written here in America. We've probably hired about 40 to 50 educators the last 20 years to write different textbooks, basically. And as I mentioned, we hired the 18 theologians to write the Bible study. 
So that's what God has given us as a resource for. We're using it in all 10 of our Rafiki villages, and we thank God that it is very good material. Um, so much so, our church partners are interested in this. So in our Rafiki villages, we now have about 3,200 children in our schools across 10 countries. Uh, we're training hundreds of teachers as well. But And so that's great. That's a great impact. But God will enable us, we hope, to have an exponential impact because of the partnerships we have with 23 African denominations. We partner with some of the largest denominations in the world. So we just part, we, in fact, we just had a visit from the Church of Uganda, Anglican, the Archbishop and his education director. We've been collaborating with them for, oh, 15 years or longer. And so now we're at the point where they have their own schools, they have churches. What do they need? Materials. What might they want? Training. And so this is something we have and that we can give them or actually sell to them for at, a, at an affordable price. You see, the interesting thing to us, and, and you and I will talk a little bit about how important Africa is in a minute, I know, but the thing about the church in Africa is this. They have large school systems, but they are secular. They're Christian in name only because they have a government curriculum. That's all they have access to. So now we have developed this material. We field tested it in these 10 countries. We've actually gone to the government in Kenya and gotten approval for this curriculum to be used by the church. And we're almost at the point where we have this done in Uganda. So picture this. What if I was able to tell you that Rafiki Foundation could take a thousand public schools and turn them into classical Christian schools? And we don't have to buy, we don't have to build a building. We don't even have to go find faculty. We just need to supply existing schools in the church school system with curriculum and Bible study and Bibles for every child who can read. Imagine what a thousand schools could do that have a half, have 500 kids each. Maybe God might allow us to do, I don't know, 6,000 schools. The Anglicans in Uganda alone have 6,000 primary schools. Um, so that's what we can do with our curriculum and Bible study in schools. We also, for Africa, have Sunday school materials. We just sent out 4,000 sets of our Roman study, along with a commentary, to the church in Ghana, the Methodist church. They're hoping to implement that across 4,000 churches. Uh, we just talked with our Anglican friends who were just here, and we're looking at supplying 1,000 churches with Sunday school materials. Uh, they don't have Sunday school materials. They can't afford it. They don't have good commentaries. They can't afford it. So this is what we can help them with, maybe do a little training, and then ship and distribute and help, that's how we get to come alongside the church, some schools and Sunday school material. So this is, this is what we get to do uh, with the church partners we have and with our materials. You said you, this is what you get to do. It's a, it is a privilege. It is a privilege. It's a privilege to serve as a missionary. It's a privilege to serve in a missions context. It's a privilege to be used by God in any way that he's expanding or strengthening his kingdom. I mean, I'm frankly speechless, just at the tall order that you all have tackled as a ministry, 
but I'm also floored by the scale of the need that is being met. And clearly there's a, a quality to that content that you all are producing. And I no doubt it's culturally tailored to this important work, which is why it's so attractive and being sought after and being potentially utilized. And I mean, I can't even get my head around the number of schools that you're talking about, just being able to supply curriculum and Bible studies and content and what a need. And you guys have really allowed yourselves to be used to provide this and make it available. And I'm floored. So with all that is going on, I I think I can even answer my own question, but I'm going to ask it anyways. Why is Africa still an important missions focus for the church today? That's a good question because, you know, people look at Africa and they say, well, haven't we spent enough time there? Isn't Africa churched? Haven't we spent money there? Why do we even, why should we, why should we have more Western mission work going on in Africa? Well, here's the potential for Africa. And then I'll talk a little bit about the challenges that are there. The potential on the continent of Africa is this twofold. First of all, the future generation of the world is going to be on the continent of Africa. In the next 30 years, one out of every two human beings, newborn human beings, will be born on the continent of Africa. So at one, one half of the world's toddlers to teenagers will be born there. We just heard from the Archbishop of the Church of Uganda, Stephen Kazimba, that 70% of all Ugandans are under the age of 30, 70%. So it's an it's a extremely uh, prolific population, and it's a young population, and one half of the world's next generation is going to be on the continent of Africa. So they say 40% of the world will be African by 2100. So if you want to reach people who've never heard the gospel, a lot of them are going to be born there in Africa. Now, now, the other thing about Africa is, yes, it is churched. And there are hundreds or 500 million people who are church members. And by the way, Andy, I don't want to give people a wrong impression, but there are some incredibly faithful, strong, godly people. In fact, if you want, to, if you want your faith to be strengthened, just go work alongside the men and women that we know in Africa who are strong Christians. However, there are theological issues in the country. Uh, prosperity theology is rampant. You have ideology coming in from China that is spreading. And of course, you have Islam. So, um, so on the one hand, you have a big church of lots of churches, but you have some, a, a, a preponderance of false teaching, uh, not enough materials um, for a pastor to buy a study Bible in Africa, for example, it could cost him one month's salary. I don't know about you, but I've never spent a month's salary to buy a study Bible. No. Uh, if you could find it in Africa, and they're not that, that uh, just aren't that, there's that many, uh, if you could, you couldn't afford it. And, and so uh, you've got pastors who have limited training, um, you know, you've got uh, lack of materials, and yet you have this influx of ideology and influences just rushing into the continent. And so that's why there's still a need. There's the potential, because the next generation is there. 
because you have a platform called the church. It's already there. You don't need to go in and plant new churches. We just need to strength, come alongside and help strengthen the existing church. And by the way, then they will send missionaries everywhere. So, um, and the other thing I love to tell people is this. You know, I think that to go over and proselytize in Saudi Arabia, for example, or even in China, I think it's against the law. And whereas in Africa, it's not. And so the Muslims are coming to Africa. The Chinese are coming to Africa. It's still, um, you can still proselytize. Now you might get killed if you go to Northern Nigeria, but it's not against the law in the country, okay? So you're free to preach the gospel. The airwaves are free. Uh, material can fly freely. You've got churches everywhere. So if you want to reach some of the unreached to the world, go to Africa. There are more Muslims in Nigeria than there are in Saudi Arabia and in several other Muslim countries. So I say there's a, there's a, a neat opportunity for that. So that's why we are thankful that God has placed us in Africa yeah. uh, and has given us this network and this distribution system called the church and given us this one little way we might be able to help strengthen the future of the church in the world, which is Africa. And you talked about your distribution capabilities and your opportunity to send good content to counter some of these challenges that are uh, coming into the the different countries of Africa. You also mentioned that there there are freedoms. You can go into some hotter areas, some dangerous areas, but you're still free to to preach and to to share the gospel. Would you share a little bit, just based off the fact that you've had you've been looking at all this for over thirty years? How is persecution today? How has it changed in Africa? And how is your work able to to go in and strengthen the church in those areas? I would say it seems to me that, uh, and I'm in, mainly in Nigeria where we are seeing this. We do have a Rafiki village in Jos, and it seems that the persecution of Christians has just increased tremendously the, in, in the form of uh, the marauding, uh, armed, uh, perhaps Fulani groups uh, in, in, in the terms of just outright terrorist groups and kidnappings. Criminal activity uh, often seems to be targeting uh, clergy, all right, religious leaders. And so um, it seems like it's on the rise there in terms of out-and-out persecution. Um, volatility also, I mean, we see what's been happening in Ethiopia. Uh, I wouldn't call that necessarily persecution, particularly of the church. And I may be wrong on that. Maybe there is some that is perhaps uh, fomented against the Protestant Christians. I think uh, there's certainly uh, upheaval um, in the continent of Africa. Uh, and, and so I and the way we are able to help is I think we, we in Rafiki, we don't help directly the persecuted church. But I wish I could. I sat across the desk from the head of the what is now the um, uh, Evangelical Churches Winning All, EQUA, which is the group I served with 30 years ago. I sat across from the president of EQUA and he said, you know what, Karen, I don't even want to look at my cell phone. Because every day I get a text of some village where we have a church 
where they've gone in and slaughtered our people. And so we get into our car and we go there and we have very little to give them. Their houses have been burned. Their crops have been burned down. They have no food, no clothing, and people have been killed. And because we have limited resources, he said, I don't have anything. I don't have anything material to give them. We go, we comfort them, we bring what we can. I mean, he was just absolutely exhausted from it. And this was last October. I'm getting back, getting ready to go back to Africa, uh, to, to Nigeria this month. You know, it broke my heart because I'm like, you know what? I really wish almost we were in that kind of ministry, but we're not. That's not our mission. There are people who are. So I would like to say if anyone listening to this is in the relief work, I would really encourage you to really connect with some of the major denominations in Nigeria, the church, and come alongside them materially mm -hmm. uh, in ways that you can to help them because they are trying to help their own people and they don't have the resources. But we do help the church by educating children, by educating the, helping them educate their children um, in their church schools. Um, so that's how we come alongside and hopefully raise another generation of men and women who can help, who can be godly contributors. Part of the problem in all this is poverty. It is an issue. And so if you have young men and women who can help create jobs, who can help uh, give to the church, help give to their people who can be givers and developers, but Christians, um, that can help some, I think. Um, but, but mainly prayer and maybe coming alongside the church in material ways. If any of your listeners are called in that direction, there are ways you can help. So um, anyway, that's what's going on in Africa. I think it's on the rise. Mm -hmm. uh, I think it's, I've seen it increase a good bit especially in Nigeria and challenges in Ethiopia as well. Well, at the Christian Emergency Alliance, we do long to, to serve and come alongside the church that's suffering like that. So we are going to look at ways that we can be bridges with these, uh, with Equa and others that you mentioned. We'd love to see them and help them to stand under these pressures. But I, I just want to reinforce what you already know, but so much of the work that Rafiki is doing is undergirding the, the church in these harassed areas, and it's an incredible work because you are infusing them with spiritual truth, but through the, the model that you're, you're using, you're also helping them to think clearly. You're helping them to develop skills that they're going to be able to use to run businesses, to be entrepreneurs, and entrepreneurs with virtue, who, who care about how the business is run and not just that it generates a profit. And you're also developing and molding the minds of young Christians who could be self-governing, who are going to be able to recognize principles that they can apply amongst themselves. And these are principles that are often neglected, not just in Africa, but around the world by educational methods and models. Um, they're really told what to think. not They're not taught how to think. Um, so you guys are really attacking this need and this issue on so many fronts that I'm I'm very excited by by it and I'm really floored. So you guys are doing a lot, even in those uh, peripheral, harsher regions of the continent. I have no doubt. We just did the next right thing. We all that's what we would say. It's truly the Lord and His goodness and His wisdom. Um, but you know, it as I reflect and look back and see and see what God has enabled us to develop, it does make a whole lot of sense. 
that if you, uh, it does, you know, a good cl a classical Christian education system is really all about cultivating disciples. You want to make disciples. I, I like to tell people next to the church and the family, a classical Christian school is an excellent discipleship environment. And so if we can see, and, 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 and we've got to replace this secular system because what, what, you, what people are concerned about here in America is in Africa, uh, maybe in a different form, but it is robbing the minds and hearts of our children. We like to tell our African partners, take your children back, take your schools back. You spend uh, 18, eight hours a day learning everything contrary to what your parents teach you at home. So we want to help the church do that in, a, in Africa. We're also hoping to try and do that here in America uh, by starting a classical Christian school right here in Eustis and model and mobilize and train people to do the same thing in other churches across America. So that's a whole nother story. So, so it, it, is, it is, when I see what the Lord has put together, I go, wow, I would have never dreamed this up. Let's create a whole nother system. And let's just get the church to embrace it and take it and run with it. And it will. You know, there's a historical parallel to this. Back during Charlemagne's time, he reinstated classical Christian education across the clergy. And, and, and really, it sort of helped to foment the Carolingian Renaissance. But the other thing it did is it so rooted the faith and the thinking. You brought that up in your comment, where young men and women are thinking properly. They, can't, they can think. And they're thinking from a Christian worldview, and yet they have a they can help contribute to society. And so it did that into the minds and hearts of the people then, so that even when they were overrun by the Germanic tribes, and even when they were occupied, they proselytized their occupiers. So whatever happens in the continent of Africa, if God allows us to reach many, many young people, with this kind of thinking and theology and a real heart for the Lord, whatever happens economically and ideologically, they will be able to proselytize whoever occupies that nation. So watch out whoever lands there. That's yeah. what I want to say. Yeah, it's it's so, like I said, I could have never dreamed this up, but the Lord has put us on this path. So uh, pray for us that the Lord would allow this to happen. Thousand schools, 2000 schools, why not 10? Well, let me ask this real quick, just to those that, especially in the mission circles who may be thinking through this, how does the classical model fit in cross-cultural Africa? And if it can work in Africa, it must be able to work in other cross-cultural environments, but that might be a disconnect for some of our listeners. How does that fit together? One of the things we tell our African partners is this, since Africa is substantially Christianized, well, then classical education was the education of the church. And so historically, it fits from that perspective. Secondly, uh, the, the classical model values the past and history. So do Africans. They value tradition and past and history. Whereas, whereas the model that perhaps has been adopted in the last century, which is a more progressive model, is not as interested in the past, right? The other thing is the classical model, the liberal arts education, was always an education of free men and women. And so if we want people to have a mindset that is a, about a freedom, real freedom, 
the virtue and wisdom type freedom, then a classical education is a better model. And it teaches a young man or woman uh, not how just to do something or how to just take a test, but how to learn how to do anything. And so if we want an, a free Africa, then this is the kind of education they need to have, a liberal arts education. The question you ask yourself, though, is what do dead white men have to say to live black people? Plato and Aristotle and Shakespeare and so on and so forth. Uh, it's, it's that great conversation where many ideas uh, were discussed. And if Africa is going to enter the conversation, then they need to know the conversation so that whatever is true, good and beautiful from the continent of Africa can be displayed to the rest of the world. Uh, and so that's what we hope to help foster. We're not stopping with uh, the, say, 19th century. Uh, we're going to add whatever is true, good, and beautiful from the continent of Africa. And there are legends and fables and proverbs and kingdoms and histories that hopefully young men and women who are educated this way in Africa can unearth and display and add to the great conversation. And, and so that's how we explain it. And then, of course, we incorporate into our curriculum and into our schools, African art, African music and rhythms, African stories, great authors. Already you have Chingwa Achebe, Wole Shoyinka, Ngohi Wathiongo. There are other uh, musicians and artists in literature uh, that uh, in poetry that we are able to bring in to the conversation. But you know what? We can't do it. It's got to be the Africans. So we're just going to give them the tools and get it started. But I, I was already talking last year with a university and I said, look, we need an anthology of great African literature. You need to unearth that, put that together for us. We'll help pay for the publishing of it and distribute it through all our schools. And, and so this is, this is the 21st century, the 22nd century um, as, as, uh, as we, we do that. So that's how this works in Africa. Well, I'm excited. No doubt anybody that's listened to this conversation is excited how can our listeners go to learn more about the Rafiki Foundation to support your impressive work and just get more involved personally, perhaps? Maybe there's opportunities for them. Well, I would share this podcast. And uh, Andy, I want to thank you for opening this. And I would encourage you all to share this podcast so people will learn more about Andy's work and about Rafiki. You can also go to our website, RafikiFoundation.org, RafikiFoundation.org. Uh, there's going to be a, there's a podcast that I'm doing on the um, True North FM with Classical Academic Press. Uh, you might also tune into that. Also, the Consortium podcast. So there's more information on those. But our website's the best place to go. And I would encourage you to think about being a part of our ministry. You can pray. You can buy a Rafiki Bible study and lead a small group here in America with our Bible study materials and pray. And that also helps to support the work. You can sponsor a child to one of our schools, uh, day, day student sponsorship, or maybe you can go and serve. Those are some great ways to be a part of the work. Well, that would be fantastic. We're going to include all of that in our show notes, so you can go and find that information there. Uh, but Karen, I've really enjoyed our conversation. I can't thank you enough for your time, and I wish you the very best in all of your efforts with the team. Andy, thank you. And look, come see us. And if you're in Africa, let me know. I'll do it. All right. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thank you so much, too. Bye-bye. Right.
Bye. Thank you for joining us today for the Christian Emergency Podcast. If you enjoyed today's show, please subscribe and give us a five-star review. Also, tell your friends about us and ask them to subscribe as well. To learn more about the Christian Emergency Alliance or financially invest in our ministry, visit us at www.christianemergency.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter. Thank you again for listening and stand strong out there.